0: 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as we continue through. And as you're turning there, you notice that in the announcements that next week we will be delivering the presents for Angel Tree. Yesterday, we had our Angel Tree gift wrapping party here at the church. Thank you for all of you who showed up. Next week after church, we will be delivering those presents. And I, and I, I want to encourage you to participate in the delivery of those presents. And just to tell you a quick story that really impacted my life, hopefully I can do it without getting emotional, but many of you know that in 1990, my dad went away to prison for for 10 years. And at that time, I became the custodian of my, my younger sister. She was seven at the time. And so the first couple of years were very, very difficult for us. It took a couple of years to get our footing. But about three years into it, we were actually able to, to go and purchase presents uh, through the Angel Tree pro, pro, program and and uh, take presents to to, the ch- to uh, children whose parents were incarcerated, Our, my dad was in jail, and so you know, we kind of knew what that was like. We went to this one house, and uh, I'll never forget. We walk up to this house. it was a duplex and it was one of those things where the front doors here, and uh, there's jealousy windows right next to you on the uh, front steps, and this was a bedroom and so Daisy and I that was my sister's name, we go up to the door, we knock on the door, and the jealousy windows open, and the little guy in there, and he goes, "Who is it?" we said well it's it's." Dan and Daisy, and we're here, and we're bringing presents, and we said his name, and, his, and we said his dad's name, and he's your dad's sending presents to you for Christmas, and we heard him scream with excitement, we went, ah! and he ran out of his bedroom, down the hall, and to the front door. You could hear him go, ah! right up to the front door. So we opened the front door, and his grandmother invited us in. We went into this, this living room. There was nothing in the living room. There was no furniture. There was one chair that she was sitting on. There was a TV that was on a cardboard box, and it was a very, very old TV. So there was nothing, nothing else in the house that we could see. And uh, we got to, to bring Christmas to this little guy and let him know that although his dad couldn't be there, his dad still loved him. And, and, and it, was, it was impacting for us because we too had been through a very hard time. And yet we went into a house that was so far beyond our our worst time. And it really helped us to walk away with an appreciation for how the Lord has blessed us, even in through some very, very difficult times. And so I encourage you we, 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 uh, we, we want to get our kids involved and, and take our kids, and you're taking the love of Jesus to somebody who otherwise would, would not have a Christmas. So thank you for participating. This year, we, we signed up for 300 kids. You guys took care of all of that. We wrapped the presents, and uh, that was yesterday. Next week, we'll deliver. So write Deliver on your, on your uh, connection card and participate in that next week after church. First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter eight. I want you to go to chapter seven. Uh, we're gonna uh look at a couple of things in chapter seven. I um uh we've been working our way through First Corinthians, and I, I thought that maybe we'd start looking at some things topically, but uh I thought let's just go through one more chapter before we begin to do that in the Christmas season. And so uh you'll remember if you've been traveling with us through this book that Paul has received a list of questions from this church in Corinth. And so he is responding to the questions that they sent. So in chapter seven, verse one, you'll notice it says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So at this point, Paul begins to respond to the questions. And then if you go to verse 25 of chapter seven, it says now concerning, and he begins to answer the next question. Here in uh, chapter eight is going to be just the next question, so uh, we'll look at that. Now in chapter six and seven, we dealt a great deal about relationships. What was proper? What was improper? Made some people mad. Got a couple of emails, and uh, so I thought I thought that uh, maybe just to keep that train going, we'll go into First Corinthians chapter eight. And if you were bugged by the last things we shared, this should put you right over the edge. So. <laughs> we're going to deal with the next question that that uh Paul receives. And now in Corinth, uh, Corinth was a a Greek town. It's a pagan town. And so there are a number of temples in Corinth. And of course, this is nothing like Jerusalem, nothing like like Israel, where it would be monotheistic and very, very conservative. This is very, very pagan, very, very permissive. And uh, so the pagans would bring their sacrifices to the temple. And because it was their sacrifice to their God, it would have to be the very, very best that they had to bring to their God. So the priests would take the, the the sacrifices that were brought in, you know, in the pagan temples, and they would divide them into three parts. So the first part would be sacrificed to the God. The second part would be given to the priest, and that's how they, they would eat. And then the third part uh, be, would be taken to the back of the temple or out in the market, and that would be sold to to just the the population. Now, it was the best of the best because it was a sacrifice. You couldn't bring second best as a, as a sacrifice. So it would be the very best meat. The priests would receive it for free. So then they would sell it. And because it was the best of the best and they got it for free, they could sell it cheaper than anybody else. And so they, you know, it was, it was a hundred percent profit, you'd say. So the big question for Christians would be, could we eat this stuff? Some of the Christians there in Corinth would say, "It's just meat. It's just meat." Other Christians would say, "But it's demon meat. You know, so you can't eat that." So, uh, and then the other question that they would ask is very much like in our society today: uh, these pagan temples would have these halls that you could go and you could rent out, and so some people would have their their weddings in those halls, or they would have a certain party. And so would it be appropriate if you were invited as a Christian to go to the pagan temple and go into their their temple and be part of a party or a part of a part of something not a religious ceremony but just you know a wedding or or some type of party. So they were wrestling with that. So Paul's going to deal with this but he's going to deal with the kind of the wider issue. He's going to take about 3 chapters to kind of unpack this. We'll deal with chapter 8 today and chapter 9 and then chapter 10 as as uh, as we go. So we're going to look at Chapter eight. We're going to look at it from their context, but then we're also going to apply it to our context, and let's uh, let's see where we wind up. I'm going to to pick it up in verse one of chapter eight. He says, "Now concerning this is just the next question. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now we know, and all have knowledge, uh, that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not known. He is not yet known as he ought to know." but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So Paul begins this by saying, some of us are going to have some knowledge in certain things and uh, be careful because that knowledge can make you arrogant. So we want to respond in knowledge, but we also need to respond in love. And we'll see how that works out as we travel through. Verse four, he says, therefore concerning, this is the next question, therefore concerning the eating of things, sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the, in the world and that there is no God, but one. When your Bibles say things sacrificed to idols, it's speaking specifically of the sacrifice which would be meat. So if you go down to verse 13, you'll just notice that it says, therefore, if uh, if food causes my brother to stumble, I would never eat meat again. That's what they're talking about. The sacrifice would be be meat. Verse 5, he says, for even if there are so-called gods, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on the earth, As indeed there are many gods and many lords, lots of temples and things of that nature, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So as Paul begins this, you're going to find that he's saying there's really nothing to that meat, there's nothing to that statue, it's just meat. Just meat. So and 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 uh, so we don't even recognize those idols and, and things of that nature. However, verse seven, and in my translation, it says, "However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol, until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol." And there, and I want you to underline conscience being weak. Underline the word weak. All of your Bibles have the word weak. Their conscience being weak is defiled. At this point, all commentaries that that you would read on this will, will all make the point, and they will say something like this, and I want you to write this down. We're going to find, as we travel through this chapter, we're going to find that it's the weak Christians who have the most convictions. The weak Christians have the most convictions. We're also going to find that the weakest Christians are the ones who are going to be the most critical of those who have what we would call freedom in Christ. And we'll talk about that as we travel through. Verse 8, it goes on to say, But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So it's, it's, God says, I, I don't care. You know, Food doesn't make you right before God, doesn't make you wrong before God. How many of you have ever heard of a group called the Seventh-day Adventists? Seventh-day Adventists would hold that it's Jesus and you have to keep the dietary laws of the Old Testament. If you don't keep the laws of the dietary, uh, dietary laws of the Old Testament, then you're not really right with God, where Paul would say the food doesn't really matter to, to God. So we, we see that. So the big question here in chapter eight is, can I eat food that is sacrificed to an idol? So in Paul's day, the big question was, was meat. And the reason that was such a big question is that meat was associated with occultic practices. Some said it's just meat and others said, well, it's, it's demon meat. Some would just say, well, you know, thank you, Jesus, for the meat. And, and they would just eat that. Those who had the freedom to eat the meat and they just said it's just meat, they had a, a knowledge that, that this is just, just meat. And so, um, but the problem with them is they became arrogant on behalf of those who had weak consciences the other group claimed that the meat would be what they would consider to be demon meat. And in verse 7, we saw, it says, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol unto now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So they had a a weak conscience, we would say an ill-informed conscience at this point. So um, for me personally, one of the things that I would say is I never talk, I never try to talk anybody out of a conviction that they may hold. Christians have uh, a number of different, uh, different uh, convictions. It's kind of like if, um, well, in my family, we have a number of children, and those of you who've, who've had kids, you, you've certainly been through this. When my kids are small, they're, they're very much afraid of the dark. Anybody ever had that experience? And so you try to talk with them and reason with them why they don't need to be afraid of the dark. Has that ever worked? for anybody in the history of the universe, it never works. You can never talk them out of the fear of the dark. And uh, so, so what you hope is that as they grow, they get over those fears of the dark and they just, they just grow beyond it. I would never take my children and, and throw them into a dark room to kind of get them over their fear of darkness. I think that'd be kind of cruel. And so I would never do that. In the same way, I would never try to talk somebody out of their conviction, I would never try to force them to violate their conscience in any way. So um, here in chapter eight, the big issue is food, and in our country, you know, that was their big issue in in that day. In, in our country, it's things like alcohol, it's things like going to movies, it's things like dancing or tattoos or or body piercing, these types of things. It's also important as we get into this chapter to realize once again that we are also called to be missionaries to, to our culture. And when you're a missionary to your culture, for the believer, that can create somewhat of a tension, because it means that we have to engage our culture. So I want you to notice a couple of verses there in your outline. Jesus would say in John 17, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And then also Jesus would say there in your outline, he'd say, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So God says, I, I don't want to remove you from your culture, and, and you know you need to be in your culture. And if I were a missionary, I'd want to learn as much about the culture as I could possibly learn. I'd want to know what's important to them, what their customs are, and and uh, all the things that they hold valuable. On the other hand, you see in the Bible that that there's a concern that some people would get so immersed in their culture that, that they lose their effectiveness. And it's times like that, you know, they're getting absorbed that Paul would say this. Notice this verse on your outline. He says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. So there's this tension. There's this tension about going into your culture and uh, not being absorbed by the culture. That tension tends to be reflected in two extremes in the church. And most of us, if you grew up in the church, we come from one of two extremes. One would be legalism and the other one would be liberalism. So uh, let's look at that real quick as we unpack the rest of this chapter. First of all, legalism. Legalism, there in your outline, is a strict literal or excessive conformity to the law, to religious or moral code. The institutionalized legalism that restricts free choice—that comes from Merriam-Webster. So, in a legalistic church, you'll find that you will be separated from the world by keeping a list of rules. And so, some of those rules would be things like like dancing. The church that I was at before coming to Calvary. Had a covenant that you signed, and one of the things that you had to say is that you would never dance, and uh, yet the church that I grew up in, in our student ministry, we would have sock hops. And so, you know, so so which one is right? Um, Alcohol? Some some believers do, and some believers don't. The church I pastored in in Ohio was Northwest Ohio, which is a very very conservative Christian community, and uh, the. The church at large was so against alcohol that we, as the pastoral team, could not even eat in a restaurant that served alcohol, which limited things quite a bit. You might, so, because we might be seen there in a, in a restaurant, you know, where, where they served alcohol. And who would see us? Well, the people in our church, essentially, who were also there eating, which was okay for them, but, but not for us. Um, early on, church I went to, they said cards were wrong, movies, uh, smoking, tattoos, body piercing, secular music. And those are all the things that, that, uh, we, we tend in our church. And in, in those, in those churches that are legalistic, they will have a lot of rules about those things. So in a legalistic church or legalistic environment, uh, they would typically hold, and I want you to write this down, I'm spiritual because I keep all the rules. Now, any, any of you would, would ever say I, I came from sort of a legalistic background? Anybody? Anybody? One, two, three, okay. All right, the rest of you come from a liberal background. We'll talk about that then. So here at Calvary, we don't have a lot of rules. Um, As a matter of fact, there's a verse that we point to in Colossians, and here's what it says. On your outline, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self abasement. The idea is that some people delight in all the things that they don't do to show how spiritual they are. And Paul says, don't let anybody be your judge in, in those things. So you have legalism on the on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have what's called liberalism. Now, there in your outline, liberalism is a movement in modern Protestantism emphasizing the intellectual liberty and the spiritual and ethical content of Christianity. And in those churches, you sort of get the feeling, you know, their mantra is anything goes, anything goes. And they don't take a real stand on anything. So uh, go ahead and write that down. Anything goes. So that's, that's what they hold. So the problem is being so absorbed by the culture that you're not really effective. So there needs to be a balance somewhere between uh, you don't want to leave the culture and and you don't want to be absorbed by the culture. So that leaves us with uh, some questions. And the questions are, so so how do we know as believers what we can do? What can we do? What's appropriate for a believer? So I've put down today four questions as we unpack this chapter. And um, are you ready for the four questions? Are you sure? (laughs) Let's find out. Okay. Well, the first question is simply this. If you're a believer, you, this would be the first question, uh, certainly for us here at Calvary. And the first question is simply, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Bible sets boundaries as to what is appropriate. We're a Bible-believing church, and we believe that the Bible is universally applicable to all cultures and to all people. There are some things that are just universally wrong. Regardless of the culture, based on the Bible, murder, rape, stealing, uh, sex outside of marriage, pornography—these things the Bible takes a very strong stand on. These things are wrong for all people all the time, and the Bible is very, very clear of those things. And when you do those things, you find yourself you're, you're disobeying God. So, so what does the Bible say? Somebody will come and they will say, "Well, Pastor, you know, there nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't smoke pot," and it's true. There's no verse that says, "Thou shalt not smoke." thou shalt not smoke weed. You know, there's no, there's no verse like that. But there are some other verses that you may want to consider. For instance, in the book of Romans, Paul would say this. Paul says, everyone there in your outline, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So if, if if you're doing something like that, you know you need to repent, you need to step away, and that, that's not what you should be doing as a believer. So even though there's no verse that says, thou shalt not smoke pot, there is a verse that says, don't be breaking the law, essentially. So far, so good? So for us here at Calvary, the first question is always, what does the Bible say? And that's our foundation. We always go back to the Word of God and what it says. Now, the, the second question would be, what does my conscience say? What does my conscience say? And verse seven, let me read it again. He says, "However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. so some people have a, a weak conscience, and if they violate that, it, it defiles their their conscience. You and I are created in the image of God, so being unique in the creation we have something that nothing else in the creation has. We have a conscience. And that conscience is there from the Lord, and that's kind of, he puts that in us so that we have this rudder in our life that we can say this is appropriate and this is not appropriate. Some sins would be what we would call universal sins. They are, they are wrong for all people everywhere. Other sins might be conscience sins. They're not wrong for other people, but they would be wrong for me. And so I, I should never violate my conscience. So go ahead and write this down. Some things are wrong for me, but not for others. Some things are wrong for me, but not for others. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, and I want you to underline the word "weak" as we uh, travel through. We're going to find that "weak" is a real theme here. Paul says, "Accept him who is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything." but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. In our society, we tend to think that the people with the most convictions— are the people who are the most spiritual. What you find in the Bible is the opposite tends to be true. I come from a denomination where I went to seminary where it was no, 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 and just about everything. And the more no's that you kept, the more spiritual you were regarded. Or Paul's going to say, you know, really, it's the person with, uh, who, who's not burdened down by so many convictions is really the one who's probably closer to the truth. Also, from the Amplified Bible, from Romans 14 also, there in your outline, he says, "...but the man who doubts misgivings and uneasy conscience about eating, and then eats, perhaps because of you, stands condemned before God because he is not true to his convictions, and he does not act from faith. For whatever does not originate and proceed from faith is sin. Whatever is done without conviction is approved by God. A conviction of, it, of its approval by God is sinful." So you never, you never want to disobey your conscience. I think for, for many people in the church, what's so frustrating is not that you're violating your conscience in many things, but for many people in the church, you've been bound by somebody else's conscience. And, and you might have a freedom in something, but, but other people have this, this conscience and they, they, they wanna bind you in that. We could talk about any of a hundred things that the church has disputed over the past couple of hundred years. I want to just bring up two things and just kind of share how this this all works out. Um, How many of you have ever heard of somebody named Charles Spurgeon? Okay. How many of you have ever heard of somebody named D.L. Moody? Charles Spurgeon, back in the 1800s, Baptist pastor there in England. D.L. Moody was the uh, the leader of the Sunday School movement. Comes out of Chicago. Two great men of God. And so I want to talk about two things today: alcohol and smoking. So here's this great story. So you, you've heard about D.L. Moody and you've heard about Charles Spurgeon. Well, they were contemporaries of each other back in the 1800s. And uh, from an article called "What Did Spurgeon Say?" My wife, by the way, is reading Spurgeon's. Spurgeon's writings right now, and uh, it's just—I uh, walk into the room and she's crying, and I go, "What did I do?" She says, "No, I'm reading Spurgeon." So it's a, it's it's pretty good stuff. It's a, it's a little heavy, but it's but it's good. Neat guy. What I love about Spurgeon is that all of his kids went into the ministry. It's very common for very prominent pastors, their kids to grow up, and people are very blessed by their ministry, but their kids hate God and never go to church again. And you'd be surprised at the ones that did that. I don't know if you know, but uh, John Wesley and his wife uh, had such marital problems, they're not even buried in the same cemetery. And he's somebody that i am going stick with this here. We're not going to go from... Yeah. So 1800s, 1800s. Um, so it says... Um, On his journey to meet Charles Spurgeon for the first time, a nearly 400-pound D.L. Moody passed a billboard featuring Spurgeon holding a big black cigar. Spurgeon smoked smoked cigars. And when they met, Moody indicted Spurgeon. Moody weighs 400 pounds. "Do Do you know what you're doing to the temple of the Holy Spirit with those big black cigars? Spurgeon retorted, I suppose the same thing that you're doing with your knife and fork. <laughs> in a similar fashion in a, in a similar fashion, uh, Charles Spurgeon responded to those who attacked him for smoking cigars when he wrote There is a growing up in society a Pharisaic system which adds to the commands of God the precepts of men. To that system I will not yield for an hour. The preservation of my liberty may bring upon me the upbraidings of many good men and the sneers of the self-righteous, but I shall endure both with serenity as long as I feel clear conscience—a clear conscience, in my, feel clear in my conscience before God. So he said he would, he would never violate that. So he had the freedom to do that. Now I went to a church before coming to Calvary which is the Baptist church, and uh, we had to sign a covenant saying that we would never in any way smoke cigarettes, have anything to do with tobacco. And we would quote Spurgeon all the time, great teachings and all that, but we always missed the part where he smoked cigars. It was like, we didn't talk about that part. How many of you ever heard of Francis Schaeffer? There's uh, one of the great theological thinkers of uh, this past generation back in the 60s and 70s, And it says, uh, while Francis Schaeffer was not a smoker, he did enjoy a glass of sherry nearly every night as he relaxed and talked to his students. And in one of his his last public appearances before his death, he spoke to a group of pastors with visible anger at the legalism that was creeping into the American pulpits. He responded to this creeping self-righteousness by saying, when man's standards come in, God's standards go out. So, so here's a man who had the, the freedom to have sherry every night, you know, an alcoholic drink. How many of you, uh, you, you m- most of you probably never heard of this guy, Dr. Bob Jones, Bob Jones University. Come on, you can raise your hands. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Okay. You can admit it. <laughs> so Dr. Bob Jones. Now their theological statement, whatever it is, it's wrong. Okay. It's just wrong. That's what it is. Dr. Bob Jones goes and meets a man that we all know as C.S. Lewis. How many of you heard of C.S. Lewis? Chronicles of Narnia, great, great theological thinker. So he meets C.S. Lewis. Now, if you know anything about Dr. Bob Jones and Bob Jones University, no smoking, no dancing, no drinking, no nothing. So he meets him. And it says uh, he was asked, at, Dr. Bob Jones was asked after, uh, after his meeting with C.S. Lewis for an assessment regarding uh, this Oxford professor, which is uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, Dr. Bob Jones said, That man smokes a pipe, that man drinks liquor. But I believe he's a Christian. It's very hard for him to admit that somebody could be a Christian and do those things. Martin Luther, from where uh, the Lutherans come from, great reformer. He separates from the Catholic Church. He marries an ex nun. Her name is Catherine. He says, The thing that I love about Catherine the most is the beer that she brews. (laughs) Ladies, if you're single, you might want to learn. (laughs) Worked for Martin Luther. He left the Catholic Church, left the priesthood for it. So, anyways. John Calvin, how many of you have ever heard of Calvin, Calvinism? John Calvin leaves the Catholic Church, starts, uh, becomes a pastor of a church. His church says, in order to take care of our pastor, part of his compensation was to give him 200 gallons of wine a year so that he could have a merry heart and the people who joined him at dinner could also have a merry heart. And I just want to say that you as a congregation are way behind. <laughs> So you, you have this battle, this tension in our culture, what's right and what's wrong for Christians. Some are bound by the pastor's con- conscience. And just so you know, I don't believe that it's wrong to, to have a glass of wine in any way. I would not tell you that I would not because I would and I do. And so that's just, so I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's wrong. My position is don't be a drunk, but if you, if you do, you know, then you do. Um, but I will tell you this, that... Um, Jesus turned water into wine and it was certainly certainly real. So I don't think that it's wrong. But I I do love, as the pastor, walking into restaurants here in town. And I know many of you've heard me say this, but when I walk into a restaurant in town, I can always tell who goes to Calvary and what your theological background is. For instance, I walk into Rancho Chico. There's three guys sitting at the bar. They all have a beer. I walk in. They all hold up their beers going, bastard! I'm going... Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal—I'm glad you're here. You have freedom to do that. That's a great thing. You know, don't be a drunk, but you know, you have the freedom to do that. And, and what I what I what I love about them is it never occurs to them that half of the church think that's a terrible thing. So, um, you know, I love your freedom. I love the freedom, and and when I see you in restaurants, that's great. But you're not the most fun. Uh, the most fun are the times when I walk into a restaurant and. I walk in and all of a sudden somebody has that deer in the headlight look. It's like, because the pastor has just walked in and you have that drink there on your table. And uh, I, I know that, that uh, Calvary is your church home. I know that because you immediately have that deer in the headlight look, but then you take your, your, your little menu, that, the one that stands up, that advertises the specials, and you build a tent around your drink you know, so so that I won't see. You know, and you're like, this? You'd think I don't know what goes on around here. <laughs> and I don't care. You know, if you have the freedom to do that, it's great. And, uh, but I do love running up to your table when I see that look on your face, Aha! like that. Just, I don't think it's wrong, but I just, that look on your face, oh my goodness, that is priceless. But here's the thing. In, in that you're there because you have the freedom and you feel free to do that. You don't think there's anything wrong with it. But because I, as the pastor walk in, you've been bound by somebody else's conscience, not by your conscience. I don't want to be bound by somebody else's conscience and I don't want anybody to bind me by their conscience. Does that make sense? And so much of what we do in the church is we've been bound by somebody else's conscience. I personally uh, don't like to have a lot of rules that the Bible doesn't speak about and, and put that on people. I don't think that God's word and the Holy Spirit need my help. And, uh, and so we don't have a lot of rules about that. It's amazing to me that what was perfectly acceptable under the old testament law with its rules rituals and regulations has now become somewhat anathema under the freedoms that Christ has given us. So my my position would be this, if you have the freedom to do that, great, don't go into excess, be appropriate. So far so good? Yes. So the three questions so far, well first of all, what does the bible say? What does my conscience say? And the number 3, what does my weakness require? What does my weakness require? Peter would say this there in your outline. He says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Some of us here have struggled with things such as alcohol, and we know that even one drop is something that that just, we're done. And so we know that for some of us, we need to never under any circumstance whatsoever have even a sip. That's what our weakness requires, so what does the Bible say? What does my conscience say? And then what does my weakness require? And, and you know who you are. Um, and then number four, the question is, what do my friends need? What do my friends need? Verse eight, I'm going to read all the way through. I want you to underline the word weak every time we come to it. It says, but food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak, underline weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, underline that word weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak, underline that word, is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You notice here in this passage, the weak is the one who has the most convictions about everything. The one who's free is actually the stronger one as, as a believer. So here in this passage, he's saying you know, you have the freedom to, you have the right to, but, but you're with somebody who doesn't. And so you limit that because you don't want to offend somebody. Uh, if, I, if you're sitting down with somebody who struggles with alcohol, then you say, you're more important to me than my freedom. And so I'm going to set my freedom aside because I don't want to put you in a situation where you're going to be tempted to do something that you really can't or you shouldn't be doing. Does that make sense? So, so you limit yourself in those situations. So here's, write this down. So saying my friends are more important than my rights. Now, this is what this is not saying. It's very important that we understand what it's not saying. Notice verse 10. Verse 10 says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So this means that if, if you're doing something that's going to cause somebody to be tempted to do something that they need to not do, you need to limit that. It's not saying, for instance, if you have an issue with smoking and uh, you're offended by smoking and you go up to somebody and you say, I'm offended that you're smoking. Well, is their smoking tempting you to become a binge smoker. If it's not tempting you, then that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about you doing something that tempts somebody to do something that they shouldn't do. Does that make sense? A couple of months ago, we had a situation here at the church. And just uh, I want to just let you know, this is where we are as a church. That uh, a guy comes to church, a new believer, comes in, enjoys the message, goes outside outside the breezeway, and decides he, he wants to have a cigarette. He smokes. So he goes very appropriately goes around the corner, not in the mix of people, and he smokes. Somebody from our congregation goes to him and says, you think that's right? You come to church and you're smoking like, you know, like that. Well, uh, that's not our heart as a church. That's not our heart as a church. So one of the ladies in our church was one of those ladies who's like the ultimate mom. When she speaks, you listen. She gets into the face of the guy who's saying, you think that's right that you would be smoking? She gets in the face and she says, you stop that. He can smoke all the way to heaven if he wants to. Just like that. And she says, he's here. He's hearing the word, and don't you mess it up. Just like that. So the guy's like, like that. So anyways, yeah. everybody who, who, who smokes, you, you've always been very, very appropriate. You, it's not like you've lit up in the auditorium. You haven't lit up in the, in the breezeway. You know, so if you go around the corner and you do that, I don't think it's for us to go and point that out. Now, I will also tell you this. I don't think you should smoke and not because I, I, God's going to reject you or anything like that. I don't think you should because when that catches up to you, I'm the guy that you called to come see you in the hospital, and I walk into the room, and there you are. You're smoking out of your neck like this, and, and you're like, Pastor Dan, how did this happen to me? <laughs> and I'm, I'm a coward, so I go, I don't know. <laughs> Just crazy thing, <laughs> you know. So, but I don't want that for you. But I don't think it makes you unspiritual. I don't think it means that Jesus doesn't love you. You don't love Jesus, but it might be something that you want to look at. You know, it, it, the Bible says you don't want to be bound by anything. But you know what? I'm glad you're here, hearing the Word, and, and that Calvary is, is, your, is your church. So, so we'll deal with those other things another time. So. If, if you have a strong conviction against alcohol and you walk up to somebody and say, I'm offended that you're drinking. Well, is, is, are you offended because you're afraid that you're going to go on a bender? Are you afraid that you're going you know, to get, you start getting drunk and you're gonna, we're going to lose you for a month or two? No, you're, you're just offended. Well, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about you doing something that offends somebody that's going to cause them to do something that they shouldn't do. That make sense? So, Paul wraps it up here in verse 13. I think it's a great, great verse. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I would not cause my brother to stumble. I never want to do anything, even though I might have some freedoms, I don't want to be doing something around somebody that would cause them to stumble in any way. I don't want to send anybody in a place that they need not to be. I know that uh, this position that we take probably offends some. As always, my email address is inside the program. So just just keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> Let's close. Father, thank you for this congregation. And Lord, on the one hand, we want to go into our culture and be a witness for you. On the other hand, we don't want to be absorbed by our culture so that we lose our effectiveness. On the one hand, we want to have the freedoms that you've given to us. On the other hand, we don't want those freedoms to lead to bondage. We always want to look to you and say, Father, how can I best represent you? How can I best walk with you? How can I be who it is that you've called me to be? And I pray that as a church, that we always have a heart that allows anyone to come in wherever they are in life and experience your incredible love and grace to hear your word and allow your spirit to do the work that you want to do. Help us to represent you well. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.